As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. It's straight out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Today, Chelsea are the champions of the world. We talk through the Club World Cup final, what it means to have won it and what happens next. In the WSL, the game build is the title decider ends nil-nil and we round up the rest of the Chelsea news. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic, this is Straight Outta Cobham. Here we are then, gang. The start of another week, albeit the first with Chelsea as world champions. Later, we'll hear from Simon Johnson in Abu Dhabi and Flo Lloyd-Hughes in her house. Uh, But first, joining me, Matt Davis-Adams, are the Athletics' Chelsea correspondent, Liam Toomey. Hello, good to have you back, Matt. Not least because... uh... We've now got like a competent flowing intro to the podcast. <laughs> Not a bit of it. We know we've got an able deputy. Um, that's one thing we have learned from last week. Sam Parkins also with us. Hi, Sam. Morning, Matt. Right, there's only one place we can start today. Havertz, the man who won Chelsea the Champions League. And he might just have won them the Club World Cup as well. Brilliant penalty. The goalkeeper had no chance. Perhaps wisely, Chelsea take it into the corner. And Chelsea are world champions. They've completed the set. A club that's now won every major trophy available to them. It's already the second of this season. And there could yet be more to come. Chelsea's collection is complete. They are club World Cup winners for the first time in their history. So Chelsea managed to land the one trophy that has evaded them under Roman rule as the Blues lifted the Club World Cup on Saturday following an extra time win against Brazilian side Palmeiras. Uh, Simon Johnson was in Abu Dhabi for the Athletic. He sent us this voice note from inside the very rowdy Mohamed Bin Zayed Stadium. Chelsea have completed football. They've won the lot. For the first time in their history, they've won the Club World Cup final. They are the world champions, or the World Club champions. For the first time, the Palmeiras fans are quiet. I've been seeing scenes of the fans hugging each other in their way and they're gutted, they're tears. The Chelsea players on the pitch, they don't care. They're hugging each other for different reasons. My word, did they make hard work of it. 
But Roman Abramovich is here to see the two expensive boys, the one that he helped fork out a fortune for. Romelu Lukaku and Kai Havertz make the difference. Lukaku with a brilliant header. And Chelsea really should have seen the game off. But once again, their defence gives the goal, gives the way back to Palmeiras. Thiago Silva, all people, with a really needless handball. It looked like it was going to head to a penalty shootout. But it was actually Chelsea that went on penalties because as for the greatest shot was handled in the area and Kai Havertz, the Champions League hero from last May, the one who actually booked Chelsea's spot in this final in Abu Dhabi, steps up coolly, finds the side netting. One of the coolest penalties you will see under pressure. And Chelsea win the game. And for the first time, you could really hear the Chelsea fans celebrating how Maris have been silent. They've been they've travelled here in their thousands. And the man of the match has just been announced. It's gone to Antonio Rudiger. Not many people argue against that. He was fantastic. There are quite a few others that really stepped up. But well, let's just see if this will have the kind of positive effect for the rest of the season that Chelsea really want this to be. There's three months to go, there's more trophies to play for. They've added the FIFA Club World Cup to the Super Cup, they won in August. Thomas Tuchel is a cup winning machine. He will now fancy the chances of the EFL Cup, the FA Cup and who knows, maybe another Champions League. It's going to be some party when they fly home in the plane tonight. I can see Tony Rudiger doing a little dance in front of the Chelsea fans. What a great time to be a Chelsea fan for everybody. Uh, Liam, so Chelsea won without playing particularly well. Something that happened in the semi too. Is is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it depends what happens from here. Um, I mean, they still look physically jaded, perhaps mentally a little bit jaded as well, which is not great given that there are you know three months of the season to come and, and the three most important months, you'd have to say, when trophies will be decided. But it's another trophy in the bag, isn't it? This is what Chelsea do. And they've completed the set. In and of itself, the Club World Cup isn't hugely important, you know, to most European clubs. It's one of those that you only really even think about when you're in it. <laughs> but once you're in it, and if you're a club like Chelsea that have won absolutely everything else um, in the Abramovich era, it, it felt significant to complete the set. And it also felt significant because as is always the case, the South American opposition take it super seriously. And you could see that from the way Palmeiras approached the game. They were they, they set up to try and counter-attack Chelsea to try and exploit the things that Chelsea have struggled with um, over the last few months with ball progression and creation. They challenged Chelsea to break them down. They only really managed it once from open play with that with that cross from Hudson-Odoi and header from Lukaku. Otherwise, it was quite a laboured performance in attack again. Control without creation. But, you know, they got to the point where in extra time, just as when I think both teams were sort of mentally preparing themselves for penalties, that man, Cesar Azpilicueta, who, you know, only needed this to complete his own personal set of winner's medals at Chelsea, stepped up, winning the penalty and then... You know, I don't think enough was made of this at the time. I flagged it at the time um, and a few people have talked about it since. Some brilliant mind games, brilliant improvised mind games um, 
around the penalty, you know, making Palmeiras thinking that he was going to take it, making them waste all their all their energies trying to distract him and delay him, and then at the last minute handing the ball off to Havertz, who was always going to take the penalty anyway, taking all the pressure off him. And Kai Havertz adds to his Chelsea legend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a section where it says the bit where Liam lavishes praise on Havertz. We'll come to that shortly. Um, Sam, I wonder how significant the, the presence of Thomas Tuchel on the touchline was here. Obviously, Chelsea went big on on the fact that he'd arrived and put lots of nice videos of him catching up with everybody at the hotel before the game. Do you think his presence on the touchline had, had much of an effect? Well, he made some good decisions in terms of the changes, I, I felt. I thought the uh, Pulisic change worked in Chelsea's favour to give them a little bit more of a, a presence between the lines. Looked like Havertz went a bit more alongside Lukaku. So I felt that was a good decision. I think just having the, the manager on the, the touchline or, you know, around the, the camp in the, the days preceding makes sure that everyone's on their toes. I mean, it's a simple thing to say, but I mean, it's like when the teacher's off, when the assistant's in charge, in essence, you know, in my experience, that's what it's like. So... And, you know, the similarities to, I suppose, Antonio Conte, how vociferous and how involved he is on the touchline. So, of course, it probably has a little bit of a, an impact. But, um, yeah, I felt a couple of changes that he, he made throughout the game were, were well-timed, obviously forced in terms of Mason Mount coming off. But, yeah, good good to see him back. And, um, yeah, I echo what Liam said, really. Once you're there, you, you want to complete the set. And if it was in the middle of summer and there was... 22 players used by each team and it was in some faraway country, then I would understand people diminishing, um, you know, what it means. But you know, they took 15,000 supporters there. They set up uh, Palmeiras desperately to try and counteract Chelsea. It was a seriously competitive game and Chelsea won out again and just shows how brilliant they, they are and continue to be in cup competitions. Can I just add on the subject to the substitutions the thing that baffled me um and i you know i think a few chelsea fans were a bit surprised at just who tuchel decided to bring on and off um the thing that baffled me was that he he kind of waited he waited until lukaku had been subbed off to bring on ziesh when that looked to me to be the likeliest sort of connection that was going to lead to a winning goal for chelsea in in this game with palmeiras sitting so deep Chelsea were forced to swing in a lot of crosses. Um, and obviously it worked once with Hudson-Odoi putting in a really good left-footed delivery for, onto the head of Lukaku. But Lukaku didn't get much of that service over the course of the game. And then once he was off, they brought on Ziyech, who proceeded to swing in a load of dangerous in-swinging in crosses for Timo Werner. Um, and Havertz was, was doing his best to get onto them. But it, I don't know, they just felt like there was something a little bit disconnected in terms of the theory of what Chelsea were trying to do there. In the end, it doesn't matter because they forced a mistake out of Palmeiras, got the penalty. But perhaps Tuchel was a little bit rusty as well in terms of his game management, having been forced to take some time off. Uh, let's talk Lukaku then, uh, Sam. He comes up with another goal here. Is this him being, as, as somebody younger than me might say, clutch? Or has he just scored a couple of goals in a Mickey Mouse tournament? One of the, my pet hates is when uh, commentators, pundits say that uh, a ball that goes in off the centre forward's backside is going to immediately turn around a run of form. It's absolute <laughs> nonsense. 
you want to be playing well if that means an outstanding centre forward performance where you're bringing people in, you're making assists, maybe not scoring. I think that's more important than one going in off your backside. The other way it can go for you is you can score a good striker's goal as he did in this final and it should act as a confidence booster. I know we're still wanting more and he, he needs to do more in, in terms of his all-round game and we want much more involvement but I think it was a really good finish. I thought the timing of the leap was excellent. I kind of think about Gary Lineker who always said he makes those 20, he made those 20 dynamic runs across the near post 19 times out of 20, the ball goes nowhere near him. Sometimes it's just about positioning yourself in between centre-halves and uh, and hoping really. And I think to put the brakes on there uh, was good centre-forward play, brilliant timing, as I said, great finish, but the ball was magnificent from, from Hudson-Odoi and I don't remember him kicking the ball with his left foot too often. I remember one goal, I think, against Sheffield Wednesday at home in the FA Cup with the aid of a deflection. It's something he needs to add to his games. And if they're encouraging him to practice and go on the outside, that can only benefit Chelsea. So really enjoyed the goal. And I'm hopeful that Lukaku will build on this now. And, and he should do because it was an excellent finish. You can uh, read what Didier Drogba thought about Romelu Lukaku's performance. Simon spoke to him out in Abu Dhabi. That's up on The Athletic now. Uh, Liam, you pointed out the Instagram post that Lukaku uh, put out over the weekend. If you have to force it, then it probably doesn't fit. I mean, we've all tried to assemble flat pack furniture. Maybe that's what he was talking about, but, but also maybe not. Yeah, it was one of those kind of intentionally vague social media posts that... Um, not just footballers, lots of people put out on a fairly regular basis. I just thought in the context of Lukaku's situation at Chelsea, it wasn't personally me having a go at him, more just flagging that this this will not be interpreted favourably by Chelsea fans, given the way that they're viewing Lukaku and Lukaku's situation at the moment. Because if you're talking about things fitting and, and having to work, that's exactly... <laughs> what Lukaku looks like on the pitch for Chelsea and has looked like on the pitch for Chelsea for most of this season. Um, there are suggestions it could be, you know, to do with something in his personal life. Um, absolutely. Could be could be nothing in particular. Could just be a quote that he likes. But just in the general context of things that are happening at Chelsea, in the context of Lukaku speaking when he probably shouldn't uh, in the last couple of months, I just thought it probably wasn't the wisest thing to put out on your on your public snapchat but um but look as long as he as long as he finds a way to keep scoring and be a little bit more effective all round within Chelsea's game doesn't really matter what he says um you know as uh, as Simon I think referenced you know when he when he spoke to to Drogba Drogba said plenty of controversial things during his Chelsea career he gave he gave a, at least two or three sort of quite pointed ill-advised interviews um and ultimately it didn't matter because he lived he delivered on the pitch for Chelsea when it mattered most and that's what Lukaku needs to do he still uses Snapchat by the way I mean <laughs> maybe he just thought that nobody was going to see it and that's that's why he put it on there um Sam you, you touched a little bit on Callum Hudson-Odoi there I wonder if he do you think that that's a long-term option him at left wing back because we did we have seen it kind of sporadically haven't we and then Tuchel kind of seems to to fall out of love with the idea but did he do enough here to, to make you think well maybe he, he is a different option to Alonso if not necessarily a better one well I think it's a necessity for some games to have someone who's more 
attack minded in, in those positions. I think, you know, when you come against uh, up against the the lesser teams in the Premier League, especially at home, you, you have to show a little bit more intent if it's going to be the back three. So I think he's probably the first one in line in, in that regard. I know we've had Pulisic out there on, on occasions, but with Reese James and, and Ben Chilwell unavailable, I think that he has to be given that position because, you know, on, on, on occasion, because, you know, it's so competitive getting in that, that front line. So no, I, I just thought that was a, a brilliant bit of wing play. It was very cleverly crafted Kovacic's position, the movement of Havertz, everything you kind of want when you're playing against the, a deep block, a really well set defensive line. You have to move them around. And I think that's something we've criticised Chelsea about recently. Similarities maybe actually to Alonso's goal in the way that there was a bit more rotation in the front players, Werner and and Havertz on that occasion. But yeah, Hudson-Odoi, once he got one-on-one, he needs to have that ability to go on the outside. Always been a big frustration of mine. Uh, him coming in field into bodies. He needs to be able to go to the byline and deliver. And, and it took me a bit by surprise. So hopefully that's the product of some work they're doing on the training ground. Uh, Liam, here's TalkSport's Hugh Woosencroft tweeting, if Kai Havertz is a Chelsea legend after today, who are the worst club legends ever? Minimal impact overall, but delivered legendary moments. Uh, you're right of reply. Worst legend isn't a thing. <laughs> a legend's a legend. <laughs> If you're in the Pantheon, you're in. There's not, uh, you know, you're not in the broom cupboard in the Pantheon of Legends. It's just, <laughs> it's just a place where all are celebrated without reservation. Look, I, I, I understand um, the sort of conversation around Havertz because he's, he's kind of in a strange place, isn't he, with his Chelsea career in that he scored two incredibly consequential goals in big finals to win trophies and... If you were being, you know, particularly critical, you would say he's not done a lot else since he joined Chelsea. For for the money they paid, you'd expect much more in terms of a consistent key influence on the team, and he's not always been a regular starter. But I think there, it's maybe just a sign that there's a lot more to come from him, and that he. I think that the the positive of all this is that he at least has the mentality to deliver in those moments. You know, to make that run in the Champions League final, to not panic when Edison was rushing towards him and 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 finish it the way that he did. I thought he had a really good game generally um, in Porto, and then that penalty. I mean, as Pilaqueta helped him a lot, I think, because he if he'd been swarmed by Palmeiras players for a good three or four minutes before taking it, he might have missed. But um, he did a great job to clear his head because he knew that if he wasn't if he didn't score, it was a definite penalty shootout. And Chelsea would have been heading into it in sort of a weird psychological place, um, having missed the chance to win the game. And he would have been as well, because no doubt he would have been expected to take another penalty in the shootout. Um, so he did he did really well to keep his head. It was a really calm penalty. And I just think it's a good sign for Chelsea that they have a player in him who at the very least is prepared to keep his composure and deliver in those moments because we've already seen in flashes that he's got the game um, to to help Chelsea even on the biggest occasion. So if he's got the composure as well, all he needs to find is, is the consistency. I also think it was an important moment for him because the only previous penalty he'd taken for Chelsea, he'd, he'd missed in the Super Cup shootout against Villarreal. We know he, he was always really good in those situations for Leverkusen. He was their preferred penalty taker, but the way things had gone for him 
there had been a couple of shootouts that Chelsea had been in where he hadn't even taken a kick. And that made me think. That actually made made the Azpilicueta fake work on me as well as the Palmeiras players because I've seen Azpilicueta take and score penalties for Chelsea in shootouts. So I, I thought he was just going to step up and, and try and do it. Um, but it's good for Chelsea that they have an attacking player in Havertz that can that can do those things on the big stage. Uh, Sam, Liam's mentioned Azpilicueta there and, and what he did with the penalty. Now now that he's won everything, I, I know he might leave Chelsea in the summer or, or he might stay, but where does he rank in, in terms of the club's all-time greats, do you think? I've got him kind of pegged for a for a top 10 place. I know, I know it's kind of difficult to, to quantify these things, but the fact that he has won literally everything available to him quite often as captain and, and that he had that ridiculous run of consecutive appearances in the Premier League and that he's fought his way back into the team under Tuchel. I mean, he's got to be up there with, with the all-time Chelsea greats, hasn't he? he? He is, definitely. But I suppose the flair players, the, the goal scorers, always uh, get ranked higher when we're, we're talking about placing them in uh, in order. I'm amazed at his fitness levels every time I see him. I mean, when he was interviewed after the game, he didn't have a bead of sweat on him. It, he's incredible. And the intensity that he plays with every game, you know, especially if you're watching on from Stamford Bridge just behind the dugouts there, I just marvel at his, his attitude um, week, week after week, you know, rarely injured, gives absolutely everything. So... He's been a phenomenal player. Um, I suppose you'd kind of put him maybe alongside Ivanovic, something like that. Um, but yeah, he's going to fall well short of Peter Osgood and and Frank Lampard and Didier Drogba when you you come to the crux of it because those guys are the ones that get you off the edge of the seat, I suppose. He doesn't have the signature moments, does he? And that's in part because of the position he plays. And that's why I thought the what happened with the penalty in the Club World Cup final was quite good because if if he does have a signature moment, it's probably that now, uh, especially because it you know it might have come so close to the end of his Chelsea adventure. I just wanted to flag up a stat. I mean, this is this is primarily what Azpilicueta's legend is based on, just being a machine for so long. And I I put this in a piece that I wrote about Azpilicueta a little while ago. He played. He started, sorry, 185 of Chelsea's 190 Premier League matches between August 2015 and May 2020. That is insane. And he did that in like three different positions as well. (laughs) Partly as a left back, partly as a right back, partly as a centre back. Just incredible. Incredible that so many coaches have considered him indispensable almost wherever he's been playing on the pitch. Um, Incredible at looking after his body and maintaining that level of performance for so long. And while, you know, it might be more difficult to craft like a glorious montage for him than it is for Didier Drogba or Frank Lampard or even John Terry, who got a lot of important goals for Chelsea out of defence, he, he certainly belongs in that bracket, I think, when you're talking about Abramovich era legends. Uh, here's Craig Burley. Whilst Chelsea were winning that plastic cup and it was lapped up like a World Cup when Man City were racking up a 16-point gap on them in a competition that really matters. Let that sink in. Uh, Sam, a little bit bitter from the from the former Chelsea midfielder, a little bit unnecessary, but then he might say, well, it's been like nearly 20,000 times, so prove my point. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to put it in context that I think on ESPN he's playing a bit, I was going to say Victor Meldrew, but that's not that's not modern enough, is it? He's playing a bit of a Simon Cowell role, isn't he? And I suppose he's got to give you a little two-minute 
um, rant about something. So whether he truly believes this, uh, I'm not so sure. But yeah, we spoke about it a little bit earlier. And I think uh, I'll try and articulate this. The landscape has changed so much in football the last few years. Everyone champions the race for finishing fourth in the in the Premier League over winning a cup and something like that. So can't we just be a little bit more open-minded about this tournament, this opportunity to be crowned as world champions? You know, nobody bemoans the the amount of games in the Champions League and how that's changed the, the landscape in this country. So, you know, it's a, it's a different game these days. And you could see from the Chelsea players' celebrations, again, the attitude of the Brazilian supporters to this competition. It's one you want to go and win. Of course, they would rather be top of the Premier League, of course. But I think it's a huge positive that Chelsea have gone and done this. Uh, some great replies from Chelsea supporters under that tweet, by the way, including one from Sam's old academy chum, Nick Crittenden, who said, I never liked Craig Burley much anyway. He used to clean his boots as an apprentice. The going rate for a Christmas bonus was 50 quid. He gave me 30. Rude Hullet gave me 180. Uh, <laughs> nice. Love that. Uh, before we move on then, Liam, from the Club World Cup final, how significant was it that Roman Abramovich was there? Obviously, this is something which means something to him. And is Thomas Tuchel's position solidified by the fact that they, they've won the competition under him, therefore? Well, I don't think he would have been sacked if they'd lost, but um, it can only help him, you know, if if one of the few games that Abramovich is there to watch in person, Chelsea win and, and lift another trophy. Uh, it, you know, it would have also been an opportunity, perhaps the first opportunity since Porto, for Tuchel to actually have a face-to-face conversation with Abramovich. And I think that can only help as well. Because, uh, you know, I still you still get the impression everything you hear out of Chelsea is that you know, at board level, they're very, very impressed with the way Tuchel has conducted himself, um, the way that he's he's handled the the sort of slings and arrows this season of the schedule and COVID and all the sort of unforeseen factors that have kind of derailed Chelsea's title bid and, of course, the Lukaku situation. I think all of that stuff has actually made his position stronger with the board, but ultimately he's judged on trophies. So winning trophies always helps. And I think right now, um, with another trophy in the bag. That's his third. He's got a chance to win a couple more before the end of the season. He's in a strong position to get Branovich to continue backing him with his faith and ultimately with his with his money as well. Well, Tuchel, Chelsea and the trophy are now back in England. Their next game is against Crystal Palace on Saturday. We'll preview that in our Thursday pod. Next today, we'll turn our attention to the women's team. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Rexham premieres May 2nd on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Chelsea versus Arsenal was billed as a potential WSL title decider, which is almost certainly why it finished 0-0 between the Blues and the Gunners at Kings Meadow. Flo Lloyd Hughes was across this game for us and joins us now. Um, Flo, not your average 0-0, right? No, definitely. I think it sounds cliche to say, but it was definitely one of the best nil-nils I've ever seen. I've watched some really dire games of football, especially across the EFL. And when you see the nil-nil scoreline, you do get a little bit worried. But it was a very tight game. Both teams had really good opportunities. Um, moments where Chelsea was seriously living on the edge. I think Miedemar hit the post in the first half. Millie Bright cleared one off the line late in the second half. And then the penalty, the penalty, which definitely should have been a penalty. Um, Rebecca Welch, who's refereed a lot in the EFL, one of the best referees in the women's game, definitely. And, and Emma Hayes acknowledged that after the match, but she missed a very big call in the 94th minute or something like that. Eight minutes of added time. Leah Williamson handball in the 94th minute and Chelsea will definitely feel frustrated about that. And she didn't even have the excuse that she had an obscured view, did she? That was the weird thing about it. Is it, is it kind of cliche and a bit lame to say the standard of refereeing in the WSL isn't particularly great? Has it got better? Is there more that we can do about it? Are there any calls for VAR particularly? It's a bit of both. Um, it has got better. It's still not great. Um, I mean, a lot of people have, have referenced before the fact that referees in the women's game are not full-time. I think it's also hard to know what being full-time changes. Um, I think being full-time obviously gives you more experience. And when you get more experience, you become better at your job. That's kind of default. And also being full-time would probably allow you to be fitter as well. So you'd be able to keep up with play. So then there's those two things. But I also think sometimes in the women's game, I've seen things where I'm wondering, would being full-time change that much? Because sometimes you are just going to make a mistake regardless. And we see that across the whole of the men's and women's game, that referees are going to make a mistake, irrespective of the fact that they might be full-time. Um, so I think it's, it's a combination of a couple of things. I think going full-time would, would make a massive difference. Um, and I think you would see improvements. I think weirdly, one of the things we... we handballs seem to be an issue in, in the women's game this season, especially. Um, I think last season, maybe the season before, there was this ridiculous one where Katie Zellum... I think headed the ball in the wall and it got given as a freak uh, as as a handball, which was like highly embarrassing. But um, this season, especially, it seems like it's been quite bad. But I think also in the women's game, there seems to be a real issue with challenges. Um, you tend to need to kind of like kill someone on the pitch to get sent off. Um, there are very few sendings off in the women's game and it is a weird one. And I think player safety is something that they need to look at in terms of challenges and things like that. But for VAR, I don't think, I know Emma Hayes made this point after that offside goal in, in the game that Chelsea lost to us on the Emirates to start the season. She made the point that, you know, we need to have the, the best quality game and potentially VAR is part of that. But at the same time, in order to have VAR, you also need referees that can use VAR. I think we saw that when when the Women's World Cup in 2019 brought VAR in and it was one of the first major tournaments to have it, like no one kind of knew how to use it. So I don't think there's much point in chucking VAR into, into women's football unless you have the right officials who are who know how to use it. I think goal line technology is a huge one and that's easy to bring in. And I think hopefully they'll do that fairly quickly. And then I know that, you know, there are steps being taken with the PGMOL to enhance the, the quality of officiating. You've got um, Bibiana Steinhaus leading that as well. So I think we are seeing improvements, but 
refereeing is refereeing um, and, there, and there are a lot of issues across the game. It's just in women's football, you always kind of times those by 10. In terms of the result, that point surely suits Arsenal better, right? They, they maintain their gap. They're still top of the table and they, they've proven they can keep a clean sheet against Chelsea after, after what happened in the cup final. Yeah, I think it was a really important point for for Arsenal also because I think not many people saw them as really getting much from that game because they've really struggled the last couple of weeks, um, defensively especially. So I think it was a really strong point with them because it, it keeps pressure off a tad, but they still only have a two-point gap over Chelsea and Chelsea have this game in hand. So I think the, the momentum in terms of the title races is probably still with Chelsea because everyone will expect them to win that game in hand and then leapfrog Arsenal. But obviously at this moment, as it stands, Arsenal still are at the top of the table. So that psychologically probably helps them a little bit. But I think if Arsenal are going to win this title, they need to show a lot more than they've shown over the last couple of weeks. And I think Chelsea have shown with the way that they've won games uh, recently, that they, they've they got a bit more of that kind of ruthlessness back that they've been lacking this season. That's probably what they missed as well on, on Friday night. One of the worst they probably played this season. Um, and I think they'll probably kind of come back with a bang after the international break. So elsewhere in the league, Spurs up to third, City won the Manchester derby, United wedged in between them. Are we still saying that it's more than just a two-horse race or have recent results shown us that it is most likely going to be Chelsea and Arsenal going head-to-head? I think if United had won that game yesterday, and I know there was a tweet that Tom Gary from Telegraph put out on Friday saying that um, United were 100-1 to to win the title on, on, on late last week, which is just ridiculous. A team that had been in third, 100-1, to uh, in third and what, like I think, like four points off or something, um, the, the, the top spot. But the fact that United lost yesterday, I think probably really did help uh, Arsenal and Chelsea. And I think City now look like they've got a good case to get that third Champions League spot. But I, th- I think if United won yesterday, it would have changed things a little bit and it would have really opened it up and become a three, maybe four club title race. I still think Tottenham, even though they're in third and they're only four points off top, I I think in reality they will drift away because they haven't got the squad depth. They haven't got the quality that both Arsenal and Chelsea have. So I just don't think they can hold on to that. But it has been a really exciting season. I mean, it's it's the, by far the most open season we've ever had. So many teams can take points off each other. I mean, yesterday, for example, you looked at the 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 set of fixtures and you've got Reading who are on a, a record run of WSL wins facing Brighton who hadn't won in seven WSL games and Brighton win 4-1 and were 4-0 up at one point. I mean, there's so many things this season that have completely blown things out the window. Leicester City really struggling, West Ham in a really good run of form and Leicester beat West Ham 3-0. So I think... There's, there's so many opportunities for teams to take points off each other. It has kept it very open. Whereas I think in previous years, everyone is just focused on when are these top two teams playing each other and that's all that matters. Now, we've already seen how Chelsea have dropped points to Reading and Brighton. It is wide open, so you can't necessarily just guarantee that they'll win that game in hand or they'll win against you know, Reading or the, whatever. That There aren't any guarantees anymore. Um, finally, Flo... Just over 3,000 in attendance. Michael Cox putting out in his post-match piece for The Athletic, it's weird to call it a sellout when one of the stands isn't open. Um, Jonas Edeval said it deserved a, a bigger stage. Do you think this could, should have been played at Stamford Bridge, given that the, the Chelsea men's team were in Abu Dhabi? And if it was, would more people have turned up? I think as a as a spectacle and as an entertainment 
product. Yes, it deserved to be playing Stamford Bridge, but I also think there are many reasons why it shouldn't have been. Firstly, Emma Hayes prefers playing at Kings Meadow. You know, they've built this. They're very lucky in, in that sense, Chelsea, that they now have a permanent home. Uh, you know, this is a, a stadium that the women's team and the youth teams have been able to make their own and they know the pitch dimensions well. It's it's incredible grass, like one of the best pitches in the league. So, you know, they wanna they wanna they wanna defend that as their home ground and have that home advantage. And I think as soon as you plonk them into a bigger, wider pitch, although, you know, they'll be able to get some opportunities from that like they had at Wembley it does change the dynamic and they might sort of lose that home advantage. So I think there's that thing. Like there are a lot of coaches who have spoken, I think Emma Hayes has mentioned before, that they would rather play at the smaller stadiums that are their regular homes. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I do think um, it would have been nice given the, the the size of the game to have a, a bigger crowd through the door. Um, but I also think we do need to also move away from these like one-off spectacles in bigger stadiums because I don't think you do build that long-term fan base and I think what's good about selling out Kins Meadow which Chelsea do regularly they just haven't done a lot this season but before the pandemic they would get you know 4,000 people through the door is you are building that um, that pattern you're building those habits of, of people wanting to get to Kins Meadow sometimes having to fight through slightly dodgy train service and 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 building those those habits of, of coming towards Chelsea women I think if you got 30,000 people at Stamford Bridge, although it would have been brilliant, you know, probably what, 70% of those people aren't going to come back and watch Chelsea women in the near future. So I think it is important to kind of build Kings Meadow as the home of Chelsea women and get people wanting to go and watch Chelsea women at Kings Meadow. Flo, magnificent as always. And any time you can get in a subtle dig at Southwest Trains, you get a big thumbs up from me. Thanks, Flo. Uh, that was Chelsea's last league game for a while. There's an international break next weekend. Then it's the FA Cup fifth round tie against Leicester, followed by the League Cup final against Manchester City on the 5th of March. The next league assignment is on the 10th of March when the Blues go to West Ham. And meanwhile, Emma Hayes was last week announced as the winner of the Outstanding Contribution Award at the 2022 London Football Awards. Well done, Emma. Elsewhere in Chelsea news, no game for the under-23s this week. They're next in action in PL2 against Spurs on Friday night. The under-18s did play this weekend and they stage yet another thrilling comeback, eventually beating Man United 3-2 in the quarterfinals of the under-18 League Cup. Ed Brand's boys 2-0 down just after halftime, but goals from Ronnie Stutter, Malik Mothersill and Silco Thomas saw them turn the game around. Leicester, Stoke and Fulham are the other teams are still in that competition. Meanwhile, it's been confirmed that Chelsea will host Blackpool in the quarterfinals of the FA Youth Cup at Stamford Bridge. Thursday, the 24th of February for that one. It's a seven o'clock kickoff. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, 
the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Uh, Chelsea content available on The Athletic now includes the aforementioned Michael Cox piece on the WSL draw. And meanwhile, Simon Spector, Didier Drogba, as I mentioned, after the game on Saturday. You can read his praise for Romelu Lukaku up on The Athletic now. Simon also went to a UAE Pro League game and penned a piece on his experience. And he's also done something asking how Chelsea can cut the gap to Man City. Liam, you've got to pick up the slack a little bit here. You've been writing about Chelsea controlling games but not creating enough. Tell us a bit about that and what else is on the agenda for the week. Yeah, so so last week that was um that was my big piece on the Athletic, which was kind of hinged off of a couple of really interesting possession graphics that our analytics guru John Muller had put together, um, showing where teams control the ball as well as how much they control the ball. And Chelsea are clearly in the same bracket as Liverpool and Man City in that regard. But my my piece was flagging that when you look at the other numbers, they're not in City or Liverpool's class when it comes to actually creating chances. And it's not a surprise that they're not scoring anywhere near as regularly just because they're not troubling the goal. They're not getting the ball into the box as much, into the final third. A lot more of their possession is around the defence and the midfield. And sort of talking about whether that's, um, you know, to do with the system Tuchel has chosen to play and the kind of balance of the team that he's picked here. Um, So that piece is up on The Athletic to read now. This week, I'll be working on um, a piece about Chelsea's tactical evolution in the Abramovich era. Uh, I'm still planning to talk to Michael Cox about that one. I'll be working with John again as well, hopefully getting some really cool graphics just to show the different approaches of different managers that have managed to bring silverware to Stamford Bridge. Lovely stuff. Athletic.com slash Chelsea body is a place to go to sign up if you aren't currently a subscriber. Uh, Sam, where in the wide, wide world of football will you be this week? Um, oh, I've got a game at Millwall tomorrow. Um, I'll PL2 Friday night against um, Tottenham, Chelsea Tottenham. So a big one really off the back of that defeat against Arsenal. And they need to start winning and um, Fulham at the weekend. Just... I was just thinking off the back of um, Nick Crittenden's tweet, I, I think I should write an article about Christmas bonuses because as soon as he mentioned that £30, it, it took me straight back to a, a Christmas lunch where I went over to Bernard Lambord probably after a few drinks. I think he was sat with his wife and just held my hand out for my Christmas bonus. And I think he gave me three very old £10 and I just refused to move and just stared Bernard Lambord down until more arrived. There's something there, isn't there, Liam? What do you reckon? Oh, I, th- I think that's uh, absolutely right up the athletic street. <laughs> Definitely. How Bernard Lambord scammed me out of 20 quid. Yeah, and what it meant. I'd read it. Uh, I'd read it. Uh, well, what was the going rate then? Oh, it's three figures. Oof. Three figures. Definitely. I think I was very fortunate that year. I think I did Viali's for a period and Mick McGiven. So I got in with a staff, basically, and just made sure the staff room was spotless every day and their boots so I think I got weighed in but I love Bernard we had a good rapport because um I spent a lot of time in France as a as a child and my um my dad now lives there and I used to have a great crack with him what I loved about Bernard true story he had one pair of boots they were Lecoq <laughs> they were Lecoq sportif <laughs> can you believe it and they were massive big studs in them uh, you wouldn't want to be on the end of a tackle that's quite uh Rooney studs. Yeah, Rooney studs. <laughs> and it was the easiest job ever. 
because you just had this one pair of boots rain or or come rain or shine you know so he was he was brilliant and we had a real rapport but probably not after that night after I accosted him at the bridge <laughs> he's now um he's now like sporting director at car is it i think i have to check if he's still there but that's what he was doing a couple of years ago so we, we were trying to hunt him down for an interview um, i'll get him for yeah. you then no problem are you still in contact with him <laughs> no. No, no. you just said you just send him a gif of like a hand an outstretched hand <laughs> this is the piece isn't it parking and landlord reunited after the uh the famed christmas party uh really looking forward to reading that trey answer. or we could just or we could just do like a podcast special of Sam and Nick Crittenden just sounding <laughs> off about different Chelsea players of that era. Yeah, that's one Christmas for the summer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll do it for today. We'll be back on Thursday. Hmm, can we get an expert on Crystal Palace, I wonder, to preview the game? Oh, yeah, we totally got one. Dom will be with us for that. Do join us if you can. Until then, from all of us here, it's bye for now. The Athletic.